Hello and welcome to the Overland Journal podcast. I'm your host, Scott Brady, and I'm here with my Toyota pickup truck series co-host. We've actually been talking about a lot of stuff recently. We have. I've got Richard Giordano with me and we are going to talk about Tundras today. So we're going to talk about Gen 1 Gen 2 and the most current Gen 3 Tundras for overland travel. How you prepare those vehicles for it, what are the strengths and weaknesses that you need to be mindful for, and how they are kind of best prepared for that kind of travel. Fortunately, Tundras are not new to Overland International. In fact, uh, within our team right now, we've got at least three Tundras that I'm aware of. Our chief financial officer, Andre Racine, drives a Gen 2 Tundra, which is just right behind Richard right now. It's a white uh, extended cab, a six and a half foot bed truck. Our operations manager, Garrett Mead, he drives a Gen 1 Tundra. So it's a crew cab, six and a half foot bed. So it's one of the longer early editions of the of the Tundra. He drives that. His and wife then, has a second gen as well. That's right. And then his wife, Heather, she drives a second gen as well. So actually there's probably four of them that are coming to mind already. And they have actually become very popular in recent years. I mean, if you look at like what Paul May from Equipped has done with his Gen 1 and his Gen 2. He's really kind of fallen in love with those trucks and he's currently pulling an Airstream around with a Gen 2. So we have seen a growth of the interest in the Tundra. And I think the reason for that is there has been this big growth in full size. And a special thanks to Red Arc for supporting this podcast. Looking to upgrade your solar setup or get your adventure rig ready for summer? Red Arc is proud to announce their new foldable solar blankets available in 160 watts, 240 watts, and even 300 watts of power output. These monocrystalline blankets allow maximum energy absorption even without direct sunlight. Paired with genuine Anderson connectors for easy and reliable connectivity. Also available as a kit including necessary cables and a solar regulator for a turnkey solution for those beginning their solar journey. Red Arc's new monocrystalline folding solar blanket panels and accessories are perfect for complementing their existing line of fixed folding and solar blankets. For the ultimate off-grid power setup, pair Red Arc's new solar panels with their already popular range of dual in-vehicle or battery management systems. Featuring next-generation battery charging technology and maximum power point tracking solar regulators, eliminating the need for a second regulator. And with built-in green power priority, it will select solar charging first, which means less of a load on your alternator. Red Arc's line of solar products have been torture tested in the rugged Australian outback and specifically designed for backcountry use where efficiency, durability, and reliability are key to having an enjoyable and safe overland journey. There are options to the Dodge Ram, which is certainly the darling of the full-size segment. And that's because of the powertrain and the payload capabilities of that truck. The Tundra has come along with it because there are people who are going to prioritize either a brand that they love, which may be Toyota. Oftentimes that love for a Tundra comes from its durability and reliability. What do you think about, what have you seen around interest with Tundra? I think as the Toyota pickups like we have get older, uh, even the beloved Tacoma is the first gens and second gens get older, but also very, very expensive. The love for the second gen Tundras and even the first gen Tundras really blossoms because A, they're available. B, they're usually less expensive than than their uh, Tacoma brothers. And payload goes up, power goes up. You get all this capability in a less expensive truck. So lots lots of benefits. And we're seeing kind of across the board that travelers are recognizing that a little bit larger vehicle with a little bit more payload, it starts to be better suited for long term travel on the road. If you're going to be going out for short trips or you're really comfortable just kind of camping out uh, most nights, the smaller vehicles are great for that. You can drive around the world in a Suzuki Jimny if you wanted to. I didn't have the <laughs> I didn't have the best night's sleep when I did that, but it was certainly possible to do that. But I think that a lot of folks are looking at how do we travel comfortably or how do we travel long term? And that starts to really point towards the full-size truck. Mm-hmm. And the Tundra is no exception for that. What do you think about the first gen? Like, like what's well, and I, maybe we should even go back a little further. So there was this Toyota called the T100 that even came before that. Yep, another unicorn. It was and came into prominence. It became the race truck platform for mm-hmm. 
Ivan Stewart. It was a very cool truck. They were available with a manual transmission. They were available with even, I think the 3.4 liter at the the very end. Yeah. At the very end of production, you could get like a 3.4 liter, five-speed manual T100, which was like this, call it like a seven-tenths scale, full-size truck. Yeah. Very similar to a a new Tacoma, I think. You're probably right. And that's interesting how everything has grown, but the T100s are out there. They're just super difficult to find in any kind of good condition. They're kind of unobtainium because they really didn't sell a whole lot of them. No, but a lot of the parts interchange with other vehicles. I think the CV, the axles are different size because they're very similar to a a pickup or Tacoma, but they're a little wider. They are. And that's actually what's in our, in our Toyota pickup with long, with a three and a half inch long travel is a T100 axle. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So still factory axle. Okay. That's but, cool. Yeah. But they are also getting hard to find those spare parts. Yeah. They're really difficult to find. And then what came after that is the gen one Tundra. Mm-hmm. And there are some, in my mind, there are a bunch of really wonderful things about that truck, but what, from your perspective, what do you see when you look at a, a gen one Tundra? I love the drivetrain. Yeah. Smooth, powerful. Again, you're in a truck that is the same size as a modern Tacoma, but it comes with a V8 power, reliability, all the things that you love about a V8 are there. But in the platform that is the same size as a Tacoma, it's kind of hard to beat. And a lot of people don't realize that 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 is the same 4.7 liter V8 that was delivered in the 100 series Land Cruiser. So it met all of the reliability and longevity durability requirements of Toyota for a J series Land Cruiser. And anytime that you can get a, any parts that come that are shared out of a J series, which has been reflected in the, all of the Tundras that mm-hmm. have been launched, but you've got a 4.7 liter V8 Later models ended with ended up with the VVTI, I think is what they called it. It's a variable valve train. So you get up to about 275 horsepower. Um, they were never particularly fuel efficient. The five-speed automatic was never particularly inspiring, but it was super reliable. Yeah. I spent a lot of time in a good friend of mine, Harry Wagner. He had a 2000, I believe, for years with hundreds of thousands of miles on it. I think just myself, I spent three, four trips in Mexico for chasing the Sonora Rally or Baja 1000 anything in that truck. Yeah. Never, never hesitated to hop in, turn the key and drive to Mexico. Yeah. So yeah, they just keep driving and driving and driving and driving, which is really amazing where it's similarities with the Land Cruiser drivetrain. It's a full-time transfer case. It was never available in all wheel drive. You could not select a center differential lock. So it was two wheel drive or it was four high with the center locked or it was four low, which also had the center was mechanically locked. It wasn't an open differential that you could lock. So that was where a lot of the similarities end. The rear differential is a little different. The front suspension components are different also from the 100 series in several ways, but it did share a lot of those drivetrain components with the 100 series. Yeah. And it's kind of improved upon the 100 series, I would say, getting rid of the torsion bar. That's right. And to a coilover. So it's very easy. Aftermarket parts are everywhere. You can really tune them to however, what kind of travel you're doing. And they also sold quite a few of them too. I think that that's what's interesting about the generation one Tundra is that they were super popular. They sold in, you know, approaching 100,000 units. So they got a lot of volume out there. So they're, they're actually pretty available you can find those trucks out there. Yeah. And once you, once you're looking for one, you see them everywhere on the road. That's right. That's right. Yeah. In fact, I am going to look it up, but when you look at a, a gen one Toyota, Toyota Tundra, what have you seen around like clever modifications or like maybe first order modifications that people are doing to those trucks? I know I, I, my favorite thing with those is to keep them nice and simple, put good suspension under them, decent wheel and tire package. An example, Harry's truck, he just did ADS shocks, a total chaos, upper control arm, sometimes at a SPC upper control arm, depending on how he was feeling. A ton of cover on the back and jammed all the camping gear in the back between, like I said, between Sonora Rally, Baja 1000, Rebel Rally. There are many nights camp beside that thing. And it was just kept very, very simple and worked really well. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm looking at the sales numbers right now, but fairly consistently over 100,000 units. Uh, In 2005, they sold 126,000 units. Uh, They're most, the highest volume year was in 2007, uh, which was right before the financial crisis. And they sold 196,000 Gen 1 Tundras. So that's big volume, which means that they're going to be out there. You can find these trucks and they do have a lot of longevity built into them. So if you find one with just over 100,000 miles, you still have a lot of service life left, in my opinion, especially if it's been well taken care of. Yeah. And I think right now, based on what I've been seeing, a nice double cab with 100, 150,000 miles, around 20 grand. It may seem expensive compared to what they used to cost, but it's still much cheaper than a new truck. 
Totally. Yeah. Well, and much less expensive than even a used Tacoma of the same year. Yeah. It's amazing what Tacomas are selling for. And then when it switched over to generation two, the numbers stayed in the low hundred thousands all the way up until 2021, which is fairly common. Once they announce a new model's coming out, you start to see some switch over in production. And, and also they were probably running into some of the chip shortages and stuff, but they sold the lowest year of the gen two was 2021, where they hit 81,000 units but that's still a lot of trucks. They sold everyone they made and just kept on pumping them out. What I've seen on the Gen 1, they have fairly, it was still when Toyota made fairly tall trucks. Mm -hmm. So they had fairly good ground clearance. So I don't actually think that there's a lot of advantage in lifting them a whole lot. I do think that that one and a half inch, somewhere around that 50 millimeter range. And one of the reasons why we don't want to go with too much lift on an IFS is that you're kind of robbing Peter to pay Paul because there's a fixed amount of suspension travel or it's relatively fixed amount of suspension travel within an IFS where you haven't gone to long travel like you've done. Um, Or even extended travel, mid-travel shock, but correct. And that's because there's an operating range for the CVs. So even if you do upper control arms that allow another three quarters of an inch or whatever, they still are trying to keep that operating range of the CV within the specifications Because what happens is when you're at full droop, and you're at full lock, the CV axle has a fraction of the strength that it does in a straight line. With independent front suspension, we have to be really mindful around how much lift we put on them. But it seems like the first gen Tundra really tolerates and, and it does well with that around 50 millimeters. So we're talking, you know, inch and three quarter to two inches of lift. Yep. Yeah. Really and the well. way you're explaining it is that, yeah, the more lift you have, the less down travel you're going to end up having. That's so. correct. So you start topping out a lot. I don't recall, but I don't think that that vehicle has a jounce on extension. Extension. It mm-hmm. does on compression. Um, a lot of n- newer vehicles do have jounces on extension. The Gen 1 Tundra, as I recall, does not. It's probably inside the coilover or the strut in a stock configuration. But you really can get into a lot of topping. It, it decreases ride quality. You don't really want to overlift these things. Yeah, just keep it relatively low. Like you said, 50 miles is, is plenty. It's perfect. And then you can fit a 33 inch tall tire on there, mm-hmm. which means you usually don't have to re-gear. Yeah, you can leave, have the spare and the spare tire location. Yeah. That's always my limit. I that feel like on, on most of my projects is if I can fit a 33 underneath the truck, a 33 will go on the truck. Or if I can fit a 35 <laughs> under the truck. Smart. Yeah. Cause then it's just one less thing to worry about. Yeah. Because if you think of the leverage effect of a full size swing out tire carrier, you know, on the back, especially yeah. on a half ton truck, a Dodge Ram, like does not seem to care if you stick a thousand pounds off yeah. of the, I mean, if you look at the tongue weight of a large trailer, it could easily be a thousand pounds. Yeah. So they're designed to have a lot of weight off the, the rear end of them, but a half ton truck is not no. designed to have that kind of weight. So you, you do want to tuck that yeah, tire up. Yeah. A $3,000 bumper or $3,000 bumper with swing outs that yeah. weighs 250, 300 pounds. Yep. And then the bumper up high and it starts adding up real fast. It really does. It really does. In fact, I remember when I did that to my Tacoma, I put a swing out tire carrier on the back because I thought that would be clever. It looks the part. Yeah. It was a terrible idea in hindsight because I ended up needing to strengthen the frame then to, to take that. So I'm now I'm welding on the frame of my brand new truck and I'm having to put all these plates on and reinforcement. I don't think either of us are recommending that program. <laughs> if you've got a one ton truck or a three quarter ton truck, that's got the payload and it's designed to do it. That's a different thing. Tundras don't tend to do well with that kind of weight no. aft. Since it is a, a coilover McPherson strut configuration in the front, you can go to coilovers. There are options out there from a bunch of different companies. I think that it's really worthwhile looking at improving the dampers. You have limited suspension travel in the front. So by improving the dampers, even improving your jounces as well, you can really improve the ride quality of yep, the vehicle. For sure. Yeah, on the truck I was talking about, we've Harry used Timberins for a long time, kind nice. of like set it, forget it. Yep. And then he went to a, was it a light racing jounce shock okay. uh, bump front and rear. Sure. And that just transformed how the truck performed. Totally. Yeah. It was more of a, a fabricated situation to get, get those on. Well, it, and they both have their place. Mm-hmm. I, I like the Timberins a lot for if you're dealing with heavy loads, whereas I think a hydraulic jounce is going to be best when you're dealing with high speeds. Yeah. So high loads go with some kind of a progressive rubber jounce from Timbrin or, or a similar manufacturer. And if you're going to go for high speed, then you want to have some kind of hydraulic damping so that you don't get the rebound effect of the rubber jounce exactly. at speed. So, and Harry's a great driver and he really does pay attention to those attributes of his truck. He cares about how it performs. So it's cool. Now, what did he do with, with shocks up front? What was his so, coilover? Yeah, he did a ADS coilover up front. Okay. 
uh, an extended travel with the uh, upper control arm. So it was a one inch, I believe a one inch extended travel shock. Sure. And then out, out back was D relief springs. And, oh yeah. D is a good choice. Yeah. And it was very custom in particular to the way he wanted the truck to be in drive. Sure. Mostly a, a wolf in sheep's clothing. Yeah. From the, from the outside, you couldn't see anything, anything different, but underneath it, where all the magic was. Yeah. Well, and that's where you want it. Yeah. So it's like a total sleeper. Exactly. Except for when you're doing 60 down a Baja <laughs> back road. Cool. Now, what about for the front differential? I don't know enough about the first generation Tundra, but I know the rear, you can add an air locker to it. Mm-hmm. Is the front differential still the same as like that eight inch ring gear? Good question. Tacoma? I it is. I think it is. So you could probably add a, an ARB air locker to the front of that. Yeah. And any of those trucks I've been in, whether they've been an air locker or like a eat and true track, I feel like most of the time that's, that's all you need unless you're getting really technical for sure. Yeah. The yeah. trucks really benefit from a locker in the rear because mm-hmm. in so much the case with overland travel, but oftentimes these trucks are very light in the rear. They can really spin a lot I and mean, they just don't have as much traction. So if you can lock up one, the rear differential on a truck, on a pickup, it usually improves things quite a bit. Even if that's just driving around a, a snowy ski town. Correct. Yeah. It makes a big difference. And any kind of traction control that you'll see on the later generations of Tundras were really, it was really rudimentary. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't particularly effective. It allowed for a lot of wheel spin before you'd get any kind of brake traction control. Yeah. And I feel like in like our second gen or 2008, it's really just trying to make sure you don't die. It's yeah. not really trying to get you any traction. Yeah. We typically would use the second gen Tundra brake traction control, the early versions of it, as an example of some of the poorest performing brake traction control. <laughs> Yeah. We actually have videos that we would show our editors of like, this is what you don't want to have happen. And then if you did any left foot braking, it would cancel it. So Mm -hmm. it was even worse. Brake traction control can be very beneficial when you do have some kind of a gear driven limited slip because any brake traction control that comes on gets amplified by the gear driven limited slip. Yeah. Which I'm not sure what they've got in the rear on the Gen 2 for mechanical limited slips. Yeah, nothing. It's open diff in in mine at least. Yeah. What is available for Gen 2 for locking differentials? So we are going to put an Airbnb air locker in ours, Um, but you can also, again, eat in true track. Nitro makes a a limited slip as well. And I think if you're looking for something that's mainly different on the street and, you know, you happen to go through snowy patches or wet patches or icy patches, whatever it is on your drives, limited slip is a really good option. It is. Tire size isn't, isn't too big and your weight isn't too heavy. Well, that's the key is that the gear driven limited slips tend to have limitations around tire diameter because you get so much rotating mass that when those gears start to press out against the case, they're not really designed to take like a 37 or something. But if you're 33, 34 inch tall tire, maybe even a 35 with the right driver, I think you can get away with those true tracks in the back. For sure. There's something very nice about the simplicity of them. Yeah. And they, yeah. they really work nice. Yeah. A lot of people don't realize how nice a true track works, yeah. especially with even a little bit of brake traction control. It just starts to all be like magic. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. And very fluid and smooth and, and predictable. Yeah, for sure. And you don't get the same oversteer or you don't slide off your line as much as you would with an air locker. Yeah. And there's a little bit of forgiveness, which is nice. Now on those gen ones, another upside is they tend to have pretty good payload. So there were some two wheel drive models of over 2000 pounds and it wasn't uncommon to find four-wheel drives in the 17, 1800-pound payload capacity range, you tend to still have pretty good payload in the Gen 1 Tundras. And that can be really useful if you want to install a four-wheel camper. And in fact, one of the longer trips that I did in a Gen 1 Tundra was I drove the Mojave Road in a four-wheel drive Gen 1 Tundra with a four-wheel camper on the back of it. It just really gave me a sense of the overall size and dimensions. And it was probably the first time I thought, you know, maybe there's something to this full-size truck thing that I hadn't really considered before. So it started to challenge my perceptions around like everything's got to be small. In North America, it's not as much of an advantage. No. And Ashley and I started playing this game. We started in Mexico when we were there this winter and then we played it as well in uh, Saudi Arabia and it was called Would Our Tundra Fit? Yeah, I like that. Yeah, so we were running around a little rental Toyota Fortuner when we were in Saudi and we were in our Toyota pickup in Mexico. Every time we're doing something technical or fun or just a little excursion or driving through a small town, trying to drive through a narrow congested gas station, we always ask, did the Tundra do this? 99% of the time, the answer was yes. We did the same thing when we went on our South America trip. Looking back on that, we started asking 
okay, if there were there towns we couldn't have made it through, were there different trails we couldn't have done? And most of the time, the tundra would have been just fine. Yeah, I, I can think of so few true overland journeys that I've done where a full size or even a seven, eight size, like a Gen 1 tundra wouldn't fit. Maybe the jungle tracks that we did in Guatemala, because they were very much like the width of an 80 series Land Cruiser, because that was the people who cut that trail. Yeah. So, <laughs> They're not going to um, cut it any wider no, than they need. No, because it's a lot of effort. So yeah. there would certainly be cases where that would be an issue, but not many because most, even most remote towns still need to get service and infrastructure brought to them. And that's normally going to be in some kind of a medium duty truck, like a Fuso or Cantor or something like that, where you've got, you know, you got to get supplies back to these villages. Exactly. And even if it's in a sprinter, a sprinter yeah. looks narrow, but it's just tall. It's tall. You know, it's the Tundra, I believe is still narrower than a sprinter is. Oh, interesting. Yeah, even the, the second gen. gen yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That I would not expect. No, because the Tundra looks so wide. This Got was it. based on internet research and not actual measure tape measuring <laughs> tape in my hand. So I'll have to double check. We should. But, but I'm yeah, uh, I'm 99% sure that's the case. Well, so the Gen 1 Tundra, I think is very much still worth looking at. Mm-hmm. I think that there are a lot of great examples out there and there is a lot of them that are still being built. Uh, take a look at Paul May's build of a Gen 1 Tundra. It should be on equippedone.com. That's just a really neat truck that he put together. I think he supercharged it. Because like if Paul can get a supercharger for something, he will get it. Yeah. He'll find it. Uh, but I think he supercharged it, didn't he? Yeah, I think he, I think he so. Um, yeah. I feel like every time I drive with Paul, the foot's to the floorboard. So yeah, that yeah. would make sense. <laughs> yeah, I, totally. they, they don't make a supercharger for that anymore. I think those rods are fragile like glass. Yeah, yeah. They did for a while. They work. You could definitely get a TRD supercharger yeah. for the 4.7 for a period of time. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know that that's still the case, but I think Paul ended up with one of the last ones. Makes for a fun truck, I'm sure. Yeah. Oh, geez. I can just imagine. Yeah. Because the 4.7's already scoot, no doubt. And then when it comes to campers and other things for the back of it, uh, sometimes people will go with Tacoma four-wheel camper in the back of it, which really pulls it in nicely against the bed rail. Mm-hmm. So it's surprising how well like a Tacoma campers work on the Gen 1 Tundras because they, you know, they pull everything in just a little bit tighter, but they don't fit a full size camper. So that's just something to be aware of is that they don't. The Gen 2 does. Yeah. And I think that that's probably a good place to transition towards talking about the Gen 2 Tundra because those are going to be the most common that people are going to use now. What made you decide to go from 1990 yeah. Toyota pickup to Gen 2 Tundra? Like what? was the process that made you decide that that's what you wanted to take on your next global journey? The purchase of the Tundra was after driving our 1990 Toyota pickup about 60, 70,000 kilometers down from Vancouver to Ushuaia back across Canada. And then I started using it to commute for work and stop and go traffic. And I was like, I think I need something else other than this at some point. Um, just anything more modern. So we started looking at double cab Tacomas, just thinking, okay, we like the platform, we like the size, and maybe at some point we can do some sort of camper on the back without thinking about payload or anything else. Just thought Tacoma, that's the way to go. But I could not find anything that was at all in our price range of about $20,000. Sure. And then I thought, well, let's look at a first gen Tundra. But I had it fixed in my mind that I really wanted a double cab because we have an extended cab pickup. And I was like, just that extra space, haul a couple extra bodies, you know, a little bit more luxury of the cab would be would be nice. Except they were all at that point about $20,000 for trucks that had 300,000 kilometers on them. Wow. At that point, we we're living on Vancouver Island. So it wasn't a lot of options for us. I just happened to be walking past a Mazda dealer and there was a second gen Tundra sitting in the back that looked like it was mint. And I kind of like walked over and poked my head in at very few kilometers on it. It had uh, 115,000 K on it. And I walked into the dealer and asked about it and they said it was a trade-in. I offered them 20 grand and picked it up. So wow. What yeah. a deal. Yeah. So they didn't have to do any, anything to it. It was nice, easy sale for them. Sure. And we got a truck that the original owner had been maybe put seven or 8,000 kilometers on it a year. He'd take it out in the summer, tow his like 20 foot trailer, put it back away in the garage. And what color is that one? It's white. Yeah. Oh, so nice. white double cab, six and a half foot bed. You're, you're now an overlander. Exactly. Proper color. Does it have a snorkel? Uh, not yet. It has oh, a, not yet. Yeah. Mic drop. Yeah, exactly. We have, we got a pile of stuff that is yet to be installed. <laughs> so you went from a red 1990 pickup without a snorkel to yep. a, a white Tundra with a snorkel. It just, okay. 
looks part. He's all grown up. Exactly. I get, like, I get my snorkel badge now. <laughs> it's the, it's the overlanders wave. Yeah. Like it just like everybody's all waving to each other. With their <laughs> <snorkel>. <laughs> it's perfect. Like you need like a little emu head or something for it. You need a little button that makes it go back and forth. That's <laughs> perfect. Uh, uh, all right. So you decided upon a gen two Tundra. Yeah. It, we were, we were forced to buy a gen two yeah. Tundra because what? nothing else, everything else is way too expensive for us. But it seems like you're happy with the results. Seems like yeah. you've enjoyed the truck. Yep. The motor's great yep. other than you can't pass a gas station, but everything else about it's great. Yeah. And, but, and this is the thing is every Tacoma that has any weight in it That's gets true. 13 miles per gallon. That's and totally valid. every Tundra that I've been in that has weight in it gets, you know, 11 miles per gallon. Yeah. It's not a big difference. It's not a big difference. And sometimes it'll get even a little bit better than that if you keep your foot out of it. Yeah. yeah well, it's just not working that hard. No, exactly. Our stock truck got 17, 18 miles per gallon with like heavy 35s and skid plates and stuff on it now, um, which will get changed, but it gets like 15 miles per gallon. Yeah. So it could be a lot worse. I've been in, you know, if you look at these big diesel Rams, if it has a camper on it, it gets 11 miles per gallon as well. True. So it's got the payload, it's got the power, but you know, the range, the range is only there because the fuel, because it can haul the fuel. Right. Because it has the capacity for it, the yeah. payload for it. So what have you found in your research that are some things that people need to look out for on the Gen 2 Tundra? Like, are there any weak points that you're finding? All right. We talked a little bit about the effectiveness of the brake traction control, which is one of the few things that I found yep. problematic around that truck. They were never available with a locker or limited slip of any type. Yeah. So. Which is a, definitely a downside. So if you see TRD or TRD Pro on your Gen 2 Tundra, that doesn't really mean anything other than it has a stamping in the bed yep. and a slightly prettier shock. Yep. Exactly. So. They all work differently. Equally yeah. well in different terrain. Didn't gain like an off-road mode or anything like that. It does give some, you know, it usually comes with different tires and it's got, you know, a little bit better shocks on it and stuff. Yeah. And uh, I know there's a, there's a recall on the front clamshell bearing at some point and our truck had it. So you can either get it fixed by Toyota through a, a service bulletin. I know East Coast Gear Supply has a uh, bushing that you, that you can install as well as an option, but. And special thanks to Equipped for supporting today's podcast. More than 15 years ago, Equipped Expedition Outfitters became the first American company to import the best-in-breed vehicle expedition equipment from across the globe. Since their humble beginnings, they have risen to become a go-to leader within the adventure travel industry, continuing to deliver a diverse portfolio of reliable, long-lasting products backed by unparalleled customer service. From shelter solutions from EasyOn to portable fridges from National Luna to aluminum storage boxes from Alubox, their ever-growing selection of best-in-class gear increases your capability, comfort, and confidence during any adventure. Visit equippedone.com to gear up. Beyond that, they're pretty like like you said, they're they share so many parts with the 200 series Land Cruiser. Pretty bulletproof. Yeah, so the engine 5.7 liter V8 is the same motor that's available in the 200 series Land Cruiser. Did it also get the performance upgrade that the Land Cruiser did in 2016 or so? I'm, I'm not sure because in 2016, the Land Cruiser also got an eight speed it transmission. Did. I don't think the Tundra ever did. I don't know if that ever happened with that. That might be worth worth looking into at some point. 5.7 liter V8. It has heavy duty five speed transmission. Six. Six now. Okay. Six speed yep. transmission. Yeah. It was the gen one that had the five. So six speed transmission, a lot of shared suspension components with the 200 series. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a little Land bit Cruiser. of a wider track width. So the control arms are a little bit wider and I think the seat, the axles are different, but I believe like, I believe the differential is very similar. And I believe that the, the coilover is the same. The coilovers are the same. Yep. Don't they swap back and forth essentially? You can. I think the, I believe that the Land Cruiser ones are a little bit shorter, but if you, but you can also, you can swap control arms. So you can do like a Tundra swap onto a 200 series and make it a little bit wider. Um, and then you can also put in a longer shock from a Tundra, I believe. Yeah. yeah. That's a, that's a Kurt Williams question, but <laughs> I, I, totally. I believe we're not lying. And yeah. I, and I do know that the brake package is, uh, is very similar because when we were down in uh, Baja uh, with Kangaroo back in 2017, we like when they're. When they needed uh, a break in a hub, we scavenged one off of one of the, the second gen Tundras that was a chase truck and threw that on a trailer. It does look like that in 2016, though, you could get a much bigger fuel tank option. It says a, mm. there's a 38 gallon fuel tank option. Yeah. yeah so the, the, I've got a 26.4 gallon yep. tank in, well, I used to have yep. a 26.4 gallon tank in my truck. <laughs> right. Um, and then you can swap in the 38 gallon. I ended up going with a transfer flow 46 gallon tank. Yeah. And you just have to check the, or the EPA 
to yeah. see if you can do that. It depends on the country and other things. Of course, your your vehicle is going to be leaving. So it's just important to know if you're, if the tank is compliant with those things. It's um, kind of, and, and the, it's nice with the transfer flow one because it comes with a second charcoal canister oh, nice. that runs in series. So they've paid attention to a lot of emissions control systems. Oh, that's great. And that takes it to how many gallons? 46. Oh, wow. That's yeah, great. So that almost doubles the range, which is, is great because uh, the Tundra is just so good at soaking up either long dirt roads or highway yep. miles. I remember the first time I drove that truck in Montana. So speed limit's 80 doing slightly more than 80, maybe close course. And, uh, <laughs> but all of a sudden, like two hours later, fuel tanks dry, but it's just like, you're going so quick. It's so smooth. Sure. And, uh, the tank really is quite small. Yeah. From what I'm seeing here, it does not look like that. The 2016 model got the eight speed that the Land Cruiser did. It is a nice upgrade. Yeah. People definitely look for that 2016 model. And they pay for it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Land, geez, a 200 series Land Cruiser right now. It is, it's like unobtainium. Yep. And if you can find them, they're so expensive. But that's why we're talking about Tundras. Yep. They're, it's like a Land Cruiser. They're, they're, they're but like cheap. A- <laughs> Second gen Tundras right now are selling like a good one you can get for 15 grand. Yeah. Yeah. You can't even buy like a replacement wheel package for a 200 series no. Land Cruiser for that. It feels like. And then there was also a TRD supercharger available for the 5.7 as yep. well for a period of time. Yeah, I've been in, I spent quite a bit of time with one truck that had that, had that supercharger. It's uh, made my Magnus in, Magnus in still makes it, um, but it puts out 550 horsepower. Unbelievable. So especially the truck that I was driving was stock truck, stock tires, nice and nice and light, but with yep. the supercharger. And yeah, Chris, Corn- Chris Cornette, actually the guy who bought my, I bought my house from, he had a TRD supercharged 5.7 Tundra, yeah. which would had to be just been wicked. Yeah, that premium fuel is also <laughs> wicked to pay for, but- <laughs> Yeah, I don't uh, think you'd ever want it for global no. travel, but geez. It feels like it's a, an appropriate amount of power for the truck. Yeah. It doesn't feel like it's too much. You can hand your keys to anybody. They'll go yeah. drive it because the more you put your foot into it, the more power you got. It's very linear. Yeah. You just you stop looking at miles per gallon. You start going to smiles per gallon. Exactly. Yeah. Unlimited. <laughs> Unlimited smiles per gallon. <laughs> what do you guys have planned for your Tundra? What, what yeah, are you going to so put in it? When we got our Tundra, we we put a, the very first go fast camper that they ever made for a full size truck on it. Did uh did 34 inch tires and uh old man emu nitro charger. What tires did you put on? Uh we had BFG 37. Okay. Nope. They have a 34 1050, which is really clever. I'm trying to remember what size it was. I think it was like a 34 10 or 1150. It was a, on an 18-inch wheel. At okay, the time. sure. Yep. The old man basic nitro charger shocks and medium mm-hmm. duty springs out back. And it was a killer little combination. Pretty light, still fast. I can use it for camping or we left the bed empty just for around, around the sure. house, like duties. Eventually camper went off and we had Fox 2.0, 2.5s with DSCs underneath it and total chaos upper control arms just to like increase the performance of it. Put some 35s. At that time we had some BFG KO2s on 17 inch method wheels and bead grip wheels. Again, that was just like nice little daily driver that got us out to the, the ski hill or the trails or whatever very easily, nice and comfortably. Now things are changing again because we've decided that as we get older, we need a little bit more comfort in our you're lives. Not, you're not old yet. Older. Just, just as an FYI. Yeah, I'm old compared to Matt Scott. He's always so much somehow, younger than I am. So, somehow. Yeah. It's like every year he's younger than me. Exactly. Understand. He must have some sort of special elixir. <laughs> he does. Oh man. We've decided we want a little bit more comfort and we struggled with what kind of vehicle to go with for a little while because Land Cruiser Troopy route is just such a dialed combination, fairly small, capable, reliable parts availability everywhere. You can make it nice, easy, livable camper on the back, but also fairly expensive and mm-hmm. hard to find one that's in really, really good shape depending on uh, where you're getting it from. And eventually we just, uh, I was looking the Overland Journal and found an old, old article um, about Gary and Monica Westcott and their, yeah. one of their turtles. Well, if they've been driving around Siberia they have. and they've been everywhere in a full-size truck, like, what are we doing? We're idiots. Cause for so long, we're just focused on small vehicle that we can get us anywhere, small towns, small trails, just in case, even though the just in case almost never happens. Sure. We decided that the Tundra was a good fit. It was already in our proverbial driveway. We owned it. Doesn't owe us anything. We don't owe anything on it. Right now it's got 192,000 kilometers. So whatever that 110, 20,000 miles on it. The next thing was that we were in Saudi Arabia and there are 200 series Land Cruisers everywhere. There, it was very surprising the amount of Tundras that we saw second gen, even first gen that we saw over there. Sure. And then Sequoias everywhere, which also a surprise to me. Sure. Like, That's where all the Sequoias went. Exactly. They didn't sell them here. No. And I saw like 
Parts availability, because they share so many pieces with the Land Cruiser, is worldwide. And these trucks are everywhere. These five sevens are everywhere. We're like, let's just take this truck that we have. Totally. It's got power, comfort, air conditioning, heated seats, and enough of a payload that we can work with, but a comfortable camper on the back. Yeah, there is nothing that drives better than a vehicle you have paid off. Exactly. <laughs> it's the truth. A lot, uh, lot of worries are just... Yeah, dumb. your goal is to travel the world, not to signal that you have some fancy new vehicle. Exactly. I guess one of the other things, too, was that we're working full-time from the road and that means that we need a place to work from the road out of a cramped wedge camper that's just big enough for two of us to sit side by side with our arms beside us was just a little bit too small. So we figured if not now, then when decided to make a move and start making some changes. You're thinking about putting a camper on the back. Yeah. I know that you have some that you're looking at. You want to talk about some of the different options that you've considered? Yeah. So it's an 08 Tundra double cab, six and a half foot box. So the payload is around 1600 pounds. That's not a lot. We can definitely work within it. I'd rather like keep the truck nice and light as possible where we can um, to improve living space and camping. Uh, we don't need a whole bunch of armor. We don't need a whole bunch of extra accessories. Yep. And, and we already have, like all of our camping gear is lightweight camping gear anyway. So we have, like our Elinox chairs that we sure. nothing. And if we're bringing camping, like trekking gear with us, it's lightweight MSR pieces and all these things. So we will try to keep weight as low as possible where we can and then just utilize it where we want it the most. So we have a Mitz alloy tray flatbed coming for it. What is that a swap as far as weight? Does it uh, weigh it, about the it's same? It's about the same. So oh, it, that's it, impressive. Yeah. So it was the lightest tray that we could find sure. um, that was going to be here this year. We talked to the guys down at Mitz and they are sending up 80 inch by 80 inch footprint on the flatbed. I think it'll end up weighing slightly more than the bed of the truck, but uh, on paper, it doesn't. Does it have boxes? It does. So it comes with boxes on the side. It's got the trundle drawer out back, also a water tank that you can use. We'll see where the weight comes in, like once it's actually here and installed, because the side boxes are really nice. But rear drawer, if you know, if we need to save the weight to get and re- get rid of the rear drawer, we... We definitely will. Yeah, that would probably save 30, 40, 50 pounds yeah. or so, wouldn't it? Yeah, it adds up very fast. And then you can remove the tailgate and it's surprising how much tailgates yep. weigh. Like I did that with the AT4 to get under payload with the Scout Camper. You know, the tailgate weighs almost 90 pounds. Yep. Very, very heavy. Now this one flips and opens and transforms and everything else, uh, which is why it weighs so much and a bunch of electric actuators and everything in it. But you take it out and it makes a big difference. Yeah. The other way we're saving weight is we're going to remove some, well, it doesn't gain us any payload, but it's we have some CBI off-road skid plates front sure. and mid, and those are 175 pounds. The truck isn't really used for technical off-roading, and those are really just for emergencies or a, sure. like a whoops situation. We're going to remove those, and I've got a TRD Pro aluminum front skid plate, 25 and a half pounds or 27 pounds. Yeah, you really just want to protect the radiator and all of those lower components in the front. Exactly. Yeah. So, and it doesn't have to be durable because it's there just in case. So it doesn't have to withstand a whole bunch of abuse from rocks over and over again. So we're going to pull weight off the truck. How about rear seat? Rear seat. Yeah. Well, so what we're going to pull out again, like the 60% rear seat gains us a ton more storage back there. And they're heavy. And they're heavy. We're going to leave one open again for guides. Yep. Um, just in case we need one, definitely pulling out that, that one rear seat. I've definitely, I've also considered swapping out the front seat because they're full power sure. and doing like a fancy shieldman or something. I would, I would do a shieldman. Yeah. yeah especially a mechanical comfy. one, lighter and they're comfortable. Super comfy. And, and they're so much smaller than the the factory seats that are right. so big and so wide. It's like sitting on a couch. Again. It's shocking how much lighter they are. If you weigh factory GX 470 seat and compare it to a shieldman, I mean, it feels like it's half the weight. Yeah. So I'm, I'm definitely not against saving weight that way. I've looked at um, doing the Magnaflow exhaust, trying to keep it as quiet as possible because I don't like any drone whatsoever. But you know, if I can save 10, 15 pounds here and there, yep. yeah, we'll definitely do it. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And then you've been looking at a couple different kinds of campers. Yeah. And what are some things that you're looking at? In the driveway or the parking lot behind us, we're, we're taking out one of Mario from AT Overland is a Terra camper for the next couple of nights. Get a feel for that and see sure. if that fits us. I love that it's 1,200 pounds or so. Yeah. It's a hard-sided camper no need to set up anything. You just park and you walk inside and you go to sleep or you make your food or whatever mm-hmm. you want to do. Just the simplicity. So well thought out. You can tell that Mario spent countless nights out in the wilderness in different types of campers to be able to design something that's well laid out, well thought out, well designed, like in, on the engineering side of things, all while keeping the weight down. Sure. So it's been a, you can see like the twinkle in his eye when he talks about it. Yeah. It's uh he's pretty passionate about the project. Yeah. We're going to take a look at that and actually get a feel for it over the I next couple the, of nights. I think the camper itself was designed Designed by Dave Sosa. Dave Sosa, yeah, yeah, from Arctic Turn, and yeah. and he's also spent so many nights camping and has built his own. So I think that 
that collaboration between Mario and David was just really awesome. Yeah. It's really paid off. It's a, it's a pretty cool camper. We're looking forward to just actually spend some time in it and see if it suits us. Yeah. Um, and then we also spend a lot of time at, uh, Overland Explorer vehicles up in Red Deer, Alberta. It's a nice hour and a half drive from where we're staying right now in Calgary. And same thing, Mark and Arnold have spent a lot of time in the oil industry designing trucks. And then they moved into a, eventually into more of a, a recreational vehicle build series for a long time. And now they're just really focusing on truck campers. They, again, talking about passion on in, about engineering. You can see drilling it. Drilling right down into uh, the construction methods for their campers to make sure that they withstand abuse and vibrations and all the things that you know, Overlander puts through for sure. Camper. Um, yeah. And it looks like it's, you know, with the composite sides and then you end up with a lower overall height, yep. you might even be able to still fit it into a high boy container. Yeah. Because those ones are pop up. Correct. For sure. Yeah. That composite build means that it's the R value is quite high. So it works a lot better as a three plus season camper sure. for sure. And for us, we've spent plenty of winter nights in a go fast camper with our diesel heater cranked. So sure. I feels like that's a the OEV ones are a good four season camper for us as well. Yeah, totally. And then of course there's the classic four wheel camper available and you see those very common mm-hmm. on, on the Tundras cause they're fairly light. Yep. And you can just do it as a standard slide in without having to remove the bed. That's certainly an option. And it sounds like that there's a go fast that they people can now sign up for to get on a Tundra. There are other options. And then, of course, you could talk with... AT Overland about their Habitat or their Summit or their Atlas. Atlas. Yeah. Um, there's a bunch of different configurations. The Scout campers are a couple a couple Scout uh, models that would work perfectly fine for a Tundra as well. Yeah, I've seen quite a few, actually quite a few Scouts on Tundras. I think it's a pretty good pairing. Yeah, Especially I, if you go with a little bit shorter unit, then the weight's even less. Yeah, I think the Olympic is the the midsize yep. and then Yoho I've seen as well. Yep. Um, but yeah, it's kind of hard to beat that for something that gets used a handful of times a, a year. Yeah. And they're very reasonably priced. They just, they don't have a lot of amenities. They're just designed to be super simple, which, yeah. which is why I use one. Cause yeah. I, I just wanted a really comfortable, quiet place to sleep. Yeah, so, cause you don't want to be fixing your camper I don't. Yeah, that's, I, or troubleshooting I, components. And yeah. when you test campers for a living, you pick the one that you don't have to work on. Yep. <laughs> that's been my, that's been my conclusion is like, I never, I never, I've never had to even turn a screw on that thing. It's just been flawless That's great. cause there's nothing, nothing really to go wrong. When you look at your suspension going forward, what are you thinking? Yeah, How are so you going to manage that weight? We had, yeah, Fox 2.5 factory race series with DSC. So a really nice performance shock, but just the amount of maintenance that was required, especially yep. up in like race pro- suspension. Yeah. Sure. And they were designed and developed down, down here in the Southwest, Baja, it's nice and dry. There's no snow. There's no winter. Sure. After a couple of Alberta winters with like, you know, salt and all the other corrosive things they're throwing on the road for traction, all the spherical bearings get eaten up pretty quickly. Uniballs need to be replaced. Um, that's in the upper control arm, at least. I had a lot of problems with the, the rear shocks with the shock shafts, originally not putting on a shield, a shield sure. or, uh, or boots on the back. You know, after 30, 40,000 kilometers of bad roads, those shafts just got eaten up. So sure. I rebuilt the rear shocks. The front shocks needed a little bit of nitrogen here and there. I thought that it was uncommon until I actually read the instructions. And you see in the Fox service um, interval matrix, it's like, okay, check your nitrogen every 10,000 kilometers. Sure. Okay. Good to know. On a long-term, long-travel build that we're going to be traveling, who knows how many countries, hopefully, we decided that something that required a lot less maintenance would be the, the smarter move. We just installed some Old Man Emu BP-51s front and rear. In the back, we are we currently have the Old Man Emu medium-duty springs, but on the shelf and in storage, we've got some Devers that were custom-made. For, Sweet. To, so when we can max out the payload, and, and that's what I, that was the explanation I had with them with Scott down there, was there's no way we're not maxing out this GVW. Sure. Assume that this is the weight that we're going to be going with. We assume we're going to have an added 15 to 1600 pounds in the truck. Sure. So we'll have that to cover, cover that. I also included got some timber and SES bump stops front and rear. Those so, are great. You know, if the springs settle in the future, or if there's a point when we are like fully topped up with water and fuel and we like, we're slightly going over GBW that those are there to help control sway and bump stop and, and then compression. What I really notice is that they help to decelerate the vehicle on a big event. Yep. So when you come into a big event, they just do a really good job of slowing things down yeah, so you don't get it, such a hard bottom. Exactly. The, the factory rubber bump stops are so harsh on bottom they outs. Are. The first time I kind of gone, I went over a few G outs with the, we had the active 
off-road bump stops originally on that truck. You go over a couple of big G outs and it just soaks it up nicely. I was sold. Yeah, they work really great. And then, another thing that I really like about the BP51s that's unusual. So they not only have compression and rebound adjustment, also internally bypassed, yeah. which is- It's which like a Raptor not, shock. There's not anything else out there from the aftermarket that I've seen that's just like that. So to get the improved durability of, you know, they address the durability concerns around coilover suspension, high-performance coilover suspension. But then I really like to be able to adjust for rebound. Mm -hmm. And I really like the fact that as it moves through the shock travel, that it does have the internal bypasses. So that way it can be a lot more comfortable in smaller events or in, you know, during the first inch or so of travel, it can start to change those journals as you go through the shock travel to really help control the vehicle, which I think it makes a big difference. Yeah. And especially when we're increasing the spring rate so much in the rear, at least of the truck, that being able to control that rebound when that spring unloads, is very, very important. You want to be able to control all of that weight, not only the weight of the camper and all these accessories that you're adding, the weight of the larger diameter tire and Mm -hmm. the heavier wheel, all of that suspension rebound that's being baked into the spring rate. That certainly makes a lot of sense to have that kind of controllability. I have found on the BP51s that it's good to exercise those rings regularly. Keep them clean as well. Correct. So they can get a little gummed up. Um, I know that they've done some things to improve that quite a bit but it's just, it's important to remember that like you don't kind of want to set it and forget it. You want to set it and then with some regularity, put it into your inspection sequence that you use for your vehicle when you're traveling that every time you do an oil change, you're going to do, you know, three clicks to the right and three clicks back to the left. So that way those things stay freed up to be adjustable when you want to adjust them. Exactly. The other thing I've done for suspension is we've gone from the factory front sway bar to a TRD sway bar up front. It's a little bit larger diameter and then installing a Hellwig sway bar out back. Oh, interesting. Yeah, just to help manage the sway so that the shock doesn't have to, shocks and springs don't have to do that work. Especially if you have long travel days. There's you're moving back and forth between drivers. I think that a bigger sway bar does make a lot of sense. Yeah. I prefer to not have them. There's some consequences if you don't, if you're not able to bring all the drivers that might drive the truck up to speed on how to handle that. Exactly. We have no sway bars in there in our pickup and it, uh, it moves around a lot. So for somebody hopping into that truck who is not aware of what's going on when you yeah. take that first corner, that's a Yeah, that's my, that's my thought is you get the vehicle in for service somewhere in the world and they go to take it out for a test drive and sway bars aren't on there and hello. Yep, <laughs> yeah, exactly. My thinking too was that start with that front and rear sway bar and see where the weight ends up with the camper and what sure. we'll go with. And then in the end, if we don't need that rear sway bar, probably that'd be the first one to go, go from there. One thing that I like to do is to make the vehicle a little more neutral because the, the heavier we go with the front sway bar, anti-sway bar, the more the vehicle will push and understeer, mm-hmm. uh, which I don't tend to like. So I like to make them a little more neutral by actually lightening the front sway bar and then stiffening the Very rear cool. anti-sway bar. And in fact, on my Tacoma, I removed the front anti-sway bar completely and put on a fairly heavy rear sway bar. Then I got a lot of articulation out of the front and it kind of drove like a mid-engine sports car. Yeah. It was like, it was- <laughs> For better or for it, worse. It was, yeah. I mean, which meant when it did step out, it was thrilling, but- Yes. It would hold the line impressively up to yeah, that point. Exactly. And I think that you can definitely see why the factory does it one way because understeer is very predictable. Oh yeah. yeah. They would rather, oh totally. They would rather the, the operator end up in the ditch yeah. than on the other side rota- of the road the rotate, <laughs> roll, or end up on the other side of the road or <laughs> off the cliff or whatever. Yeah. They want you just to push through, push through the corner, which is much safer. Cause then you got crumple zones, airbags and whatever you hit when you drive into it more so than rolling Yeah, for exactly. sure. Yeah. So it's much safer to have understeer than oversteer for a mixed bag of drivers for sure. Well, that's an exciting build. That'll be really fun to see come together and talk to us a little bit about how you plan to tell the story of that project. I have filmed and I've written, I think the first three articles for Expedition Portal and for Expedition Portal's YouTube channel. Mm -hmm. So we'll have an intro to the truck. The next one will be either a BP-51 install or um, the the long range fuel tank from Transfer Flow. All those are filmed and photographed and ready to go. Nice. Um, After that, we're going to have to see, but my assumption is going to be a that mitts alloy flatbed. Um, I got a different wheel and tire combination going on. So nice. I have a Traverse HD from 1552 going on the truck and a Toyo AT3 and the 35, 12, 50, 17. Nice. Because I've got mud trains on it now and just lightening up the weight a little bit is key. Plus with the tire that's on the truck year round, having it all terrain that's totally, that has, that I can drive in, in the snow and the ice and have some semblance of control is key. Yeah. There's no doubt that a mud train looks great, but for any scenario I've ever encountered, yeah. you know, just all, all terrain. All trains are king. Of course, I 
I don't have any wood to knock on over here, but like I've had really, really good luck with all terrains. Yeah, me um, too. And I know the ones on the, like the ones on the pickup we abuse pretty badly in, uh, in, in Baja and the AT3s, they just keep going. Yeah. If you're not in mud, don't, you're not mud, in mud a lot. Try to avoid mud, it. Don't go with the mud terrain. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that's going to be really fun to watch. The Gen 2 Tundras, they were built in huge numbers and they're all over out there in great condition. That, that motor is designed to run for a half a million miles and people will get that out of them. It's yeah. just unbelievable to see. There's several million mile tundras on the road that have been covered in editorial. In fact, Tim Estradal did a nice video on that. It's just like, here's a nut, like he's found several million mile tundras that have been you know, used for delivery vehicles and stuff mm. like that, which brings us to the fact that we just had a change with the Tundra. So we've mm -hmm. gone from Gen 2 to Gen 3. Gen 3 Tundra, they're just now getting out there. Some of you listening may even own one and have started to drive one. I was fortunate to have been able to drive both the iForce and the iForce Max powertrains in all the different configurations, including the TRD Pro variant. There are some really important updates with this newest vehicle, significant improvement in fuel economy, significant improvement in high-speed handling and predictability, and then a significant improvement in off-road performance with the addition of the rear locking differential. And in the case of the TRD Pro, you actually have another inch, inch and a half of lift in the mm -hmm. front, so in a larger diameter tire. We do know about the new generation Tundra is that it they are incorporating what they call their 300 series or their G chassis, which is this chassis that's being used in the LX 600. It's being used in the new Land Cruiser 300 series. It's being used in the Tundra and it's also being used in the Sequoia. And rumors are that it's going to be used in something other that's very interesting that's going to be coming out soon. This new platform is designed around a solid axle five link rear suspension configuration, which I'm so excited to see because the Rams have just been awesome with that five link in the rear to have a coil sprung suspension. I mean, just the way that it handles is such a departure from the previous generation. And the chassis is much stiffer as well. One of the early complaints with the Gen 2 Tundra was there was a lot of beaming effect, particularly in the longer variant. So if you ended up with a four door with a six and a half foot bed, there was a ton of beaming effect in that Tundra um, that you really noticed. And a lot of, a lot of movement in the frame could even result in some bed to body contact yeah, as there's well. A, there's a good uh, good video online about that. I can't remember what it's called, but yeah. fun to watch. Well, what do you think of the new Gen 3 Tundra when you see it what, and look at the specs? It's very exciting. Uh, they look great in person. I've never driven one. I've only ever been in a 300 series Land Cruiser, so that's like my only comparison. It'll drive I, very similar. Like. I'm excited to get behind the wheel. I love the, the iForce Max hybrid Oh, it's option. fast. Because that's, that's essentially the same power output as uh, like a 5.7 liter of the supercharger. Yep, it's fast. And you're getting better fuel economy because of it. It's crazy too, like going around in a parking lot and because it's a hybrid, like it's just like this super ninja stealthy Tundra. It's like awesome. makes no noise going around. I mean, I miss, I miss some of that growl of the V8. But so this is funny because I got totally punked by Toyota yeah. because I'm driving this thing, the TRD Pro, and I'm like, this really sounds good. I like get this thing sounds healthy. I mean, it's like the V6 and it's twin turbo and it's 3.5 liter twin turbo. They've got this exhaust on there and everything. I'm like, this thing sounds really, really good. And then I start talking to one of the engineers and I won't name them, but just in case, but they actually pipe in the sound yeah. through the stereo system. Sense. So I was totally punk. I'm like, <laughs> well, like, this thing sounds so good. Sounds so good, but it's actually like artificial V8-ish. <laughs> and all of a sudden it didn't sound so good. Uh, no, it's, it sounded, sounded like disappointment. It's like, it's like eating kale. It's like, <laughs> I didn't sign up for eating kale. Uh, I, 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 I half want to know who's trying to feed you kale, but also I get the point. Yes. Yeah. No, it's like, well, kale tastes like sadness. And that's yeah. what that fake V8 uh -huh. sounded like was sadness. That's, that's like a no. kale Caesar salad. It is. Caesar salad. Yeah, no. Just forcing you no, to eat kale. Exactly. Exactly. I didn't sign up for that. But no, the, the truck overall is excellent. You have to look for something to complain about on yeah. that vehicle because it's really good. And all of the off-road tuning for, so it's got crawl control. It's got the modern version of a track, which is when you go into crawl control. And if you're in rock mode on the multi-terrain select, the brake traction control is exceptional. I mean, most of the time you're not going to need a locker, but if you want it, it's got the magic button and you can find it on all of the variants. So if you wanted to get an SR5 TRD package truck to maximize payload, you can get close to 2000 pounds of payload in wow. that variant. So it's a pretty minimalist truck. It doesn't have
doesn't have the iForce Max and it doesn't have all that other stuff, but you can get a rear locker out of it. Uh, and then you can put your own suspension on there and you put your own tires and wheels and everything else, but at least you got the magic button in the back. Yeah, save your money up front and then... Totally. That is not to take anything away from just the iForce engine itself. I mean, fantastic fuel economy given the size of the vehicle. But that iForce Max to be able to push, you know, up well into the 20s miles per gallon in the city is really impressive. Yeah, that's huge. It's a big change. It is. Five, seven. And it's fast. I mean, yeah. it's scoots. Yeah. And what kind of payload capacity does that, like a well-equipped iForce that's, Max? That's the problem is you start with the TRD Pro. Now they've since revised some numbers where they call it a 1600 pound payload now, but um, some of the earlier ones that I saw were in the 1350s or so, but they do have a revised payload number for the TRD Pro at 1600 pounds. Nice. So that's Good. great. Huge gratitude to Toyota for paying attention to that because people are going to want to modify them. They're going to want to put stuff in them. So 1600 pounds is a, a good starting point. It gets closer to that number. Like our expectation around half ton trucks is right at that 1800 pound mark. Anything less than that, we think it's a compromise, uh, but 1600 pounds is close. And there are variants that you can get into that 1800 pound range. So SR5, for example, four wheel drive. But if you get into like a 1794 or you get into a platinum, you start seeing that 1200 pound, 1300 pound payload number. Part of the reason why it's so concerning in a full size truck is that this thing is designed to tow 12,000 pounds. So if you tow a 12,000 pound trailer, you're going to have five, six, 700 pound tongue weight. So if you have a 1300 pound payload and you've now put a 700 pound tongue weight on it, you've got less than 700 pounds. You You got to have small friends. You got to have really small friends and not bring, you can't bring the cooler. You can't put anything in the bed. You know, like everybody's got (laughs) to go on a diet. Everything's going in the trailer. That's right. Dog. Yeah. Don't don't put your dog on the trailer. (laughs) So that's where you really start to run into the limitations of payload is once you, once you've got this awesome towing capability, which it has, it's really great. And it tows so nice. Once you add a, you know, that five, six, 700 pound tongue weight, you just, you've, that comes right against payload. Hmm. So it's an impact to that. But the gen three Tundra is, is really exciting. They don't take a lot. They don't need a lot of modification uh, to do a great job. Um, We're going to see a lot of aftermarket support come out from that because it's a shared platform across so many different models. So we're going to see some awesome suspension stuff, no doubt. Um, We're going to see things that are going to address, you know, like progressive rate coils in the rear. You can, in certain configurations, get an airbag suspension in the back, which is also very clever. You just can't get it on the TRD Pro. Makes sense. I guess they're, they're really focusing on the performance shock. Yep. And what's, do you know what the performance shock package is for the TRD Pro? It is a Fox, Fox shock. It's great. It's, it's very, very good. Nice. Um, they, they did a really nice job. That additional compression travel makes a big difference as well. We have to bring it up um, and it's not intended to like just pick at Tundra, but the lack of front tow hooks, I think is something that people need to be aware of. Um, there is not a provision. There's not only not tow hooks, but there's not a way to connect tow hooks in their current configuration. So you're going to need to look for something like a fully integrated bumper system. Like when ARB comes out with theirs, you're going to be, you're going to be looking at something that has a cross member and has a bunch of additional structure that's going to be able to afford you with a recovery point. Cause right now, the only way you can conduct a Toyota communication on a recovery from the front, you have to use a transit cluster or a, a J hook um, into the cross member of the A arms. Interesting and not interesting in a good way. I mean, if anybody's ever gotten stuck in mud trying to get Yes. Like that is, you're not going to be super happy about your purchase if that's what you got to do. So there's just no other way to hook it up. Interesting. Okay. Well, hopefully they'll address that sooner rather than later. Yeah. And I'm sure that they will. There were reasons for it around pedestrian safety and all kinds of other things that Toyota cares about. And that makes a lot of sense. It'll be important for the aftermarket or TRD as an aftermarket entity to offer some solutions for front recovery points because even Tundras get stuck. So it's happened. Yeah, it's happened <laughs> sometime <laughs> in history. We, we don't need to talk about <laughs> stories. Yeah. Oh man. The number of times I've been stuck. Yeah. yeah. Learning experiences. I love it. It's all part of the adventure. Yeah. Cool. So we're going to see a lot coming out on Gen 3, uh, which is really exciting. So we would encourage you all to take a look at, if you're looking at a, moving to a full-size truck and you just love the Toyota brand and you want to see what's available, go drive them all. Go drive all three and kind of see which one best fits your needs and your budget because they really are a great solution. You do need to keep them light because they are half ton trucks. So I know it's, it's like when we get our first Toyota, we always like kind of throw away the payload card, but it'd be good for us to be mindful of what the vehicle's intended for. So uh, Tundras are half ton vehicles. So you need to be mindful of what you put in them. Yeah. But But, if you're looking for a small truck that still has the payload and you're originally looking at a Tacoma, first gen Tundra is a really good option. Totally. This content is brought to you by Overland Journal. 
our premium quality print publication. The magazine was founded in 2006 with the goal of providing independent equipment and vehicle reviews, along with the most stunning adventures and photography. We care deeply about the countries and cultures we visit and share our experiences freely with our readers. We also have zero advertorial policy and do not accept any advertiser compensation for our reviews. By subscribing to Overland Journal, you're helping to support our employee-owned and veteran-owned publication. Your support also provides resources and funding for content like you are watching or listening to right now. You can subscribe directly on our website at overlandjournal.com. Yeah, absolutely. Get a few hundred extra pounds of payload, more power, more smiles. And for those that are listening, if you've got a Tundra project of your own, or you've got some additional thoughts that you'd like to share, or you'd like to correct me on one of my foibles throughout throughout mm-hmm. the specification efforts, please reach out to me on Instagram. You can find me at scott.a.brady on Instagram. If you'd like to send me some photos of your project, it might be something that we can share through our own channels. We'd love to get your feedback on things that have worked for you. And again, any corrections that we need to make to the podcast or additional insights that you'd like to share. And I would say, actually, when you're out adventuring and taking photos of your Tundra, make sure to tag Overland Journal, hashtag Overland Journal, because uh, every once in a while those get selected for uh, like a little feature in the journal. So that's right. We do put it in the first couple pages of the magazine. Some folks that have tagged, tagged Overland Journal. So if you tag at Overland Journal or hashtag Overland Journal, we can find you that way. And Richard, how do people find out more about what you and Ashley are up to with your new Gen 2 Tundra. Yeah. So right now you won't find anything because nothing has been announced or published. This is, you've heard it first here. It, exactly. I've been too busy to like covered in grease and I actually <laughs> pour 15 the frame recently oh, just wow. to try to That's preserve a big job. it. Yeah. It's a big job. I still am tattooed a little bit from it <laughs> weeks later. Most likely you'll see it on Instagram at Dust to Glory and then it'll slowly over time uh, show up on Expedition Portal through articles and the Expedition Portal YouTube channel. Well, Richard, thanks so much for your time and sharing this exciting news about your Gen 2 Tundra. I cannot wait to see where you're going to take this truck. I know that you've got some really exciting ideas about where you want to take it in the world. And believe me, when we tell you guys, this is going to be someplace awesome that they're going to go. We don't know yet, but where you've you've talked about sounds absolutely wonderful. And we can't wait to see the content you're going to put on on that. And we appreciate you all listening to the Overland Journal podcast and supporting the publication. And we will talk to you next time.